I do not see anyone above me. And I say that as it goes both ways. I do not see myself as I'm above this person. I have the right to do this. I have the right to say this, but they don't get to say. I see us all as flesh and blood. And these hierarchies that we've created, it's exactly that. Hierarchies that we have created. The only one that's on the throne is God. And I know that God has every right through my community that if I ever forget that, to put me in check. And because I believe in being on the receiving end of accountability, it makes me that much more confident in offering accountability. Because I'm not coming from a self-righteous place of, I have it all together, but you don't. So let me tell you how you don't have it together and how much better I am than you. It it hurts to be aware of how much we suck. (laughs) You you know, that's painful. That's uncomfortable. And so I spoke to him from that place of, I know my stuff. And because I know my stuff, and I know you have stuff, and I know this other person has stuff, we all have stuff, I know how imperative it is for us all to have this experience of true accountability. You know that James Baldwin quote where he talks about the fact that he loves America more than any other country in the world? That's why he insists on critiquing her? I love that because I feel it quite deeply. Mainly because it's how I feel about Christianity and theology and even scripture. I love it, all of it, immensely. And I wrestle with it, I get frustrated with it. But at the end of the day, I love it. You could even say that my wrestling and frustration with it makes me fall in love with it deeper. It's because of this that I'm so intrigued by the idea of critiquing something that you love. For example, I try not to critique my husband too often, of course, but recently he told me he wanted to start waking up earlier to have more productive mornings. So, if it's before 8am and I see him scrolling through Twitter, I'll point it out, hold him accountable, remind him that he wanted to do better and be better. I hold my husband accountable because I love him. And another aspect of this, for those of us who identify as Christian, I hold my husband accountable not because he's just my husband, but because I believe him to be my brother in the faith. He wants to be more like Jesus, and obviously I'm talking about things other than just scrolling through Twitter at this point, but because he wants to be more like Jesus, I, as a sister in Christ, am committed to helping him do that by holding him accountable. And I think this is sort of in the same vein as what James Baldwin is talking about. His critiques of America are because he wants to see it live up to its fullest potential of justice and liberty for all, as it promises. His critique is a form of accountability. And so today, we're going to chat a little bit about this, and more specifically about something that's been seen as pretty controversial within certain aspects of Christianity. And that's protest. So, welcome to the protagonistas. A few months ago, I had the opportunity to engage in a peaceful protest on Fuller Theological Seminary's campus. I'll be honest, it was the first time I engaged in a protest that intimate, that powerful. It was organized by and for black students at Fuller, and really also just for all higher ed in general. You see, historically, higher education has been a pretty privileged space to be in. And I think it's because of that that institutional racism and white supremacy is rampant, not only in higher education, but specifically in many seminaries across the country. And of course, like many of us, I wasn't truly aware of that until recently. Before arriving at Fuller, I attended a seminary that was so white that I found myself one of the very, very few people of color on campus. 
Not only was the student body mostly white, but while I was there, the faculty was all white. The books that I was assigned to read while I was there were written by pretty much only white men. I didn't get exposed to anything other than that, and so you can imagine how much of a breath of fresh air it was for me to arrive at Fuller and my first quarter here take a class titled Race and Religion in America, taught by a black man, and my second quarter take a class called Racism and Christian Identity in the New Testament, taught by a black woman. I never in my wildest dreams ever imagined these kinds of courses could be available to me in seminary, and I know, I know, my theological lens was very limited. But the deeper I dug into the nuances of race and racism, the wider my lens got, and the more intricate I realized it all was. And of course, institutional racism and white supremacy goes way, way deeper than just merely classes on race, or even conferences on racial reconciliation, which is something that I was able to also experience while in my first quarter here. So sure, from my limited and subjective view, Fuller is was doing way, way better than many seminaries across the country. But also, based on my own personal conversations with other students of color, my understanding is that we all know there's still a long way to go, because institutional racism, like I said, runs so unbelievably deep. And because Fuller is outwardly committed to undoing this, those who are caught in the depths of it are holding this institution accountable. Loving it so deeply, they want to see it be even better than just classes or conferences. And so today you'll get to hear from Esperanza Jean, who not only helped organize the protest, but was able to address the president of Fuller directly on a platform in front of everyone. Ask anyone who saw, it was pretty intense. Now, of course, everyone has their own opinions about why and when and what when it comes to protests, and I get that. It's uncomfortable for everyone. No form of protest is comfortable, not for those witnessing it, and especially not for those engaging. And so my only hope, as I mentioned in the very first episode, is that we would be willing to listen and to understand, to build bridges through story. And so I thought it'd be cool if you got to hear Esperanza's story about her experience and what protest means to her. But before we get into protest and the whole seminary while black movement, which was the hashtag that was used, you'll get to hear us chat about intersectionality, especially because Esperanza is mixed, she's African-American and Latina. And within that, you'll get to hear us chat about colorism and the nuances of privilege even within marginalized communities. I'm not going to lie, I had so much fun chatting with Esperanza for this. Despite how heavy some of the content can get, she's pretty hilarious. So I hope you enjoy. Okay, so tell me about yourself. Uh, well, I'm originally from Detroit, Michigan, born and raised. Um, I identify as coming from a mixed background. My father's African-American. He's from Detroit, born and raised, and my mom is from the Dominican Republic. Nice. Uh, so, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, and I'm here at Fuller, um, completing two masters, doing a MA in theology and an MA in intercultural studies. Awesome! Thank you so much for chatting with me today. Yes, thank you for the invitation. Yeah. So you said that you are Dominican and African American. Yes. So can you talk to me a little bit about uh, intersectionality? What that means to you? You know, being at the intersection of both of those. 
I would have to say to talk about that, I would also have to to speak to the intersectionality of both of those as well as being a woman. Yes. Um, yes. My goodness. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, it's, it's very interesting experientially for me because coming from two different backgrounds and, and the places that I've grown up, everyone kind of decides what hole they want to peg what what mm. what box they want to peg you into yeah. and so depending on who I'm interacting some you know I've, I've gotten a variety of uh, uh responses or reactions where it's like oh you're not really black you're the Spanish girl you're the mm. Spanish chick or it's like oh you know you're not mixed what are you talking about you're just black you know mm. like what are you saying um and then there are some people who, and these tend to be the people that I'm closest to, the folks that I actually trust with my person, with mm-hmm. my inwards, um, are the people where it's just like, I mean, you're both. Like, mm-hmm. you're just yeah. all of it, and that's fine. And mm-hmm. they respect how I um, identify myself. Um, but in terms of just general social interactions, it's it's been really complicated because African American and Dominican culture while there are some similarities are very, very different. Yeah. Very different. And me personally, I'm such a combination of the two that the way I express myself, or how should I say the pieces of both that I express myself with, it's a constant fluid flow back and forth. Mm -hmm. It's not like I'm sitting here like, Hmm, I'm about to communicate like a Dominican. (laughs) I'm about to express myself like an African American. (laughs) You know, as I've gotten older, I have, stronger muscles when it comes to code switching yeah, yeah, yeah. um not only between latino latina uh groups and and african-american other african diaspora groups yeah. as well but also around white people asian people yeah. all kinds of people yeah. but still i'm, I'm always going to be a very very complicated combination mm-hmm. and so there have been plenty of scenarios where i've had a lot of misunderstandings because mm-hmm. I didn't realize at the time, specifically talking about like childhood, adolescence, not even in full awareness of being mixed, to be honest, um, because that wasn't named for me growing up. Mm. A lot of misunderstandings where I was communicating in one way that was in alignment with parts of who I am, but it was breaking the rules of my other culture. Wow. So like, for example, if I'm, you know, with a group of Latino, Latina people and I'm articulating, communicating my, communicating like an African-American, I'm following African-American rules right now, but I'm breaking mm. Latinx rules. Yeah. And it's like, whoa, what yeah. is she doing right now? This is unacceptable or vice yeah. versa. Or I'm with a group yeah. of people who are African-American or, um, or, or even, well, I'll, I'll stick with African-American and but I happen to be in that moment communicating like a Dominican woman. Yeah. Breaking all types of African American like cultural rules and they're like, whoa, <laughs> what is she doing right now? And I was just oblivious. Yeah. I didn't know. Like I, that wasn't named for me. Both of my parents had the blessing of growing up in contexts where their identity was less complicated than mine mm. and my brother's. Mm. You know, because my father is African American, grew okay. up in a black city. Um although he very much so had a lot of exposure to, you know, other cultures. And my mother grew up in the Dominican Republic. When she came to the States, she moved to the Bronx. Dang. 
<laughs> yeah, who sabe? You know what I'm saying? Like, you know, I still got my, my clan yeah. of fam that's over there, like, in the Bronx, Long Island. Okay. I think a couple of cousins in Queens. Wow. But, yeah, the only reason why she left New York is because she married my dad. Like, Dominicans don't leave yeah. New York. Yeah. Like, what is that? <laughs> what is that? You know? Um, so funny. So, so yeah, the, the, the main ways that showed up for me um, growing up was in that dynamic of social communication dynamics, mm-hmm. having a lot of misunderstandings, not understanding that I'm coming from a place of being a third culture kid. As an adult, it looks like that, mm-hmm. um, although I have, a, I would say, a much stronger handle on it with the code switching, along with now because I'm at a, I've been at a certain space of being more conscious of what is happening in the world. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um which I think is natural when it comes to growing up. Yeah. Um, it also looks like additionally balancing and juggling. Hmm. Which aspect of my oppressedness mm. can I handle to be emotionally present with right now? Wow. Yeah. That's heavy. Do I have the bandwidth? Do I have the energy to deal with sexism right now, to deal mm. with patriarchy, to deal with misogyny? Am I going to, focus my energies on misogyny right now yeah. or am I going to focus my energies on the fact that black people are being murdered left and right in the street yeah do I have the energy to grieve the most recent black person who's been murdered or do I have the energy to even deal with the fact that I have a president that assaults all of me mm-hmm. women latinx mm-hmm. african-american wow and that is the president of the country that I live in. It's a lot. Yeah. And that's on a national level, let mm-hmm. alone speaking of dealing with just day in, day out life on my local um, community interactions. Said earlier, it was that wasn't named for you as you were a kid. That wasn't named no. like the those three intersections. Like, no. Can you, I don't know, talk about that a little bit more? So when sure. you were with your dad... Mm-hmm. You're one identity mm-hmm. when you're with your mom. Yes. You're another identity. Yes. And yes. so how did those two kind of interact with each other? Or how did you, you know, kind of work through that growing up? Um, excellent question. So for me, my parents got divorced when I was like a baby. Mm-hmm. So I grew up very much so with my identities already automatically being compartmentalized. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, because my father had his household and my mother had her household. So it it was very similar to what you just said, where it's like when I was with my father, I was really, truly the way my father raised my brother and I is that we were black kids who happened to speak Spanish. (laughs) Like, he's just like, you black, baby. You know what I'm saying? Like, (laughs) you black. (laughs) Um, We went to black churches, Um, you know, and and my father, when it comes to, because each... Each person, so naturally each parent has different areas that they really focus on when it comes to parenting children. And so my father, both of my parents are teachers, but my father, when it came to parenting side, he was the teacher when it came to, I want my children to be culturally exposed and to understand history. And he's a very proud black man. Mm -hmm. And so he, he was very intentional and I'm thankful to him for this about raising my brother and I fully aware of African-American history. And in that, not only about our bondage and our oppression, but also about our greatness. Yeah, he, yeah, yeah. he balanced that very well. Mm-hmm. 
So that was the world that I was in when I was with my father. And then when I was with my mother, I, my goodness, <laughs> I, I, oh my Lord, my mother, when it comes to things of like society, social, you know, my mother's a linguist. Mm-hmm. She, she teaches Spanish mm-hmm. and English as a second language, well, you know, throw mm-hmm. any language at her and I'm sure that she could crush it. Like that, that is her. History, sociology, eh, you know, these are not her strengths. These are not her strengths, and I still love her. So she was just oblivious, just totally oblivious. Like, and I'm also realizing as an adult that while my father had to grow up with a certain level of awareness because he is from the West side of Detroit and he is a black man and he's not light skinned and he can nowhere near pass. I'm realizing as an adult, the racism and colorism within Latinx diaspora and realizing that my mother is a product of that. I mean, we all are, but my mother is a product of that in a way that she is a part of the privileged. Mm. So that's why she was so oblivious about it. Cause she was like, yeah, there's no racism in the Dominican Republic. This is my mother. Okay? Pura Dominicana. Pure Dominican. Born, raised there. Proud of it. Okay? Is she light-skinned? There's, she's light-skinned. Okay. Um, yeah, so she's she's light-skinned. She has a little bit of brown to her, but she's very light. Yeah. She has what's considered, um, even though she complains about it, because which is hilarious to me, but she has what's considered good hair because it's very soft and mm-hmm. easy to mm-hmm. like. It is curly, but if she wants to press it, it's not hard. Yeah. Um, straighten it is what I mean when I say press. And so she was oblivious. So yeah. she was like, yeah, there's no racism in the Dominican Republic. And she would give me examples, which I also experienced when I would go visit the Dominican Republic, that there, we have terms of endearment that... Um, use the word black. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, like, when you're yeah. walking down the street, and mind you, if you ever go to the Dominican Republic, I've been a few times, so. and you're a woman, <laughs> be prepared. And one of the main things they say is, Mi negra, mi negra, ay, yeah. mi negra, ay, mi negra, you know? Yeah. Which means, like, to yeah. the, the literal translation is like, my black woman, yeah. you know, my black woman, come, come, you know. And it doesn't matter what complexion you are. That's the funny part. Like, mm. whether you're pale or dark, yeah. they're still like, mi negra, yeah. mi negra, come here, mi negra. <laughs> so she would use that as an example of like, yeah, you know, there, mm. there's no racism. Like, you know, we, we love that and it's all good and it's all yeah. fine. And it wasn't until I was older and I had other people who are not Dominican oh, telling yeah. me like, Dominicans? There is racism. There's colorism. Like, what are you talking about? And I'll be like, no, there's not. My mom's Dominican. (laughs) She told me there isn't any. (laughs) So they're like over there, like more sociologically educated about my people than I am. And I'm just like, what is happening? Girl, it's Cuba. Okay. So, so, but it's because she's, she's privileged. Mm -hmm. You know, she was treated a certain way. She, she didn't have to be aware of it. I'm sure if I had certain conversations with, some of my family members who are darker skinned, yep. who are Dominican, that they would have a very different point of view, you know? Totally. Um, but a lot of my family isn't. Most of them are have what we consider like strong Taino blood, mm-hmm. so strong native blood, and they have the bushy yeah. eyebrows, and they're pretty fair, and mm-hmm. you know, all mm-hmm. this and that. So she didn't name any of that yeah. for me. And... Um, 
I definitely had the typical like immigrant experience of like having multiple generations living in the house. So my yeah. abuela mm-hmm. and um, who um, who I grew up with as though he were my grandfather, though he was technically my step grandfather. So my abuela and my papi, like yeah. they would come visit for years at a time and take care of us and all this and that. So it was just kind of very a very transplant of the Dominican Republic in the yeah, United yeah. States. It wasn't kind of this nuanced, intelligent sense of like. I won't say intelligent, but like aware okay. sense of, you know, we are Dominican, but we're in the United States and so this is what we must navigate. Like, psh, get yeah. out of here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What yeah. is that? <laughs> you live. Eat your arroz con guandule. <laughs> you know, have your habichuela con dulce. Fry your platano and go about your business. What are you talking about? <laughs> what are these things? You know. <laughs> so funny. So, um, so you mentioned two, yeah. two really good things. Mm-hmm. Colorism. Yeah. Because that's something that I 100%, I'm always trying to, you know, thinking about and talking about. Mm-hmm. I spoke to uh, Miguel de la Torre a couple mm. months ago. And and that was literally, this, just like you said, it was like this naive, like, because yeah. yeah. mind you, too, my God. <laughs> and I'm talking to him and, I'm, and he's saying, yeah, you know, because this person is Cuban and, and, and this woman, she's Cuban and she's, you know, whatever. And, and they're scholars. And I'm like, why is it that they're... That, within Latinx scholarship, we have so many Cubans. Mm. And we were in Skype and he looks at me and he's like, look at the color of your skin. And I'm like, you know, and it was like that. Yeah. Duh. (laughs) Because, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of Cubans in this country are Mm light-skinned, you know, but then you have like the Mm Afro-Cubans that are there now that are Mm dark-skinned and there's a huge difference, Mm -hmm. you know. It's almost like the light-skinned Cubans are Spaniards and then, you know, everyone's, yeah. So, so colorism is, is huge within my culture too. So mm-hmm. I, I 100% identify with that. And then along with that, the privilege within the Latinx yes, community. very much um, so. Because that is something also that is very important. You know, um, mm-hmm. I hesitate to lump myself within, you know, the oppressed Latinx peoples mm-hmm. because I'm Cuban and mm-hmm. because my family left and, and they got here mm-hmm. in the 60s mm-hmm. before everything you know b- before they got here at a time when when America let them in mm-hmm. when you know mm-hmm. everything was going great for them mm-hmm. they established sort of like you were saying the Dominican and the Bronx they established their little like yeah, Cuban got their haven spot. Yeah, they got their you little know? Cuban haven in, Cuba, in Miami yeah. you know little Havana mm-hmm. um and so there is a lot of racism within the Cuban community, mm-hmm. um, you know, with other even with other Cubans, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so I think that those are two really, really, really important things that as Latinos that we should be always taking into consideration. So thank you for bringing that up, you know, yeah. colorism within the Latinx community and uh, privilege within the Latinx community. Mm-hmm. So when would you say you really started to kind of dig into those your, those three intersections, you know, because I, I definitely want to talk about mm-hmm. gender. When did, you know, I, I know I'm sure it was at different pieces that you're like whoa hold on okay you know like for me it was like the first thing was the sexism mm-hmm. and then I'm like oh hold up I'm, I'm Latina like I'm Cuban mm-hmm. and I didn't realize that until I left, I left mm-hmm. Miami mm-hmm. and I'm like oh, you know I'm a minority mm-hmm. so when did you know what were aspects of those three intersections just kind of started standing out to you um it was really powerful what mm-hmm. you said about yeah like do I have the bandwidth today to Listen, deal with this which one yeah yeah, so how did that, you know, happen? Which wound do we have time to, mm. to feel today? Yeah, yeah. Um, very good question. I'm trying I'm trying to think. I'll say that I think one of the benefits of my parents being divorced and growing up in a way where my identity was compartmentalized is that 
it did give me, I wasn't living in a household where each side of me was fighting to be the dominant culture. Because mm -hmm. I, I, I do recognize, as an adult, I recognize that in interracial marriages, that's a very real balancing act yeah, yeah. where it's like, okay, who, who's the most dominant out of the two yeah. of us? Yeah. And, you know, what music is going to be playing? What yeah. food? How, what's the decor? Yeah. What language are we speaking? Yeah. All of that. I didn't grow up with that fight. So mm -hmm. when I was with my dad, blackness. Yeah. When I was with my mom, Latina. Yeah. That's it. <laughs> so it did give me a sense of grounding in both. I think that's probably one of the reasons mm -hmm. why I identify so deeply with both. Yeah. And I don't let people try that's to good. push me into one or the other. Because it's impossible. Because yeah. I, I just really am so much of the two. Um, that's good. So I, I always grew up fully aware of that. I know, I remember actually the day when I realized, I didn't have the word intersectionality, yeah. but the word I had was mixed. Mm -hmm. uh, the day that I realized that was mixed, which may sound really stupid to some no. people as I'm talking, but they're like, what do you mean when you realize you are mixed? You're like, Your mom is from a different country. What are you talking about? Look, Mira, be patient with me, okay? I'm human. I'm confused in these streets like everybody else. So I remember I was in my last two years of high school. Um, it might have been my senior year. And I was at this uh, black Christian boarding school, actually, mm. in Pennsylvania. And somebody had made a comment to me where it was the first time I'd heard the, oh, you black, oh, you Spanish, nana. But it was the first time I heard somebody say mixed. Hmm. Like, you're the mixed girl. Wow. I think somebody said something like that. And I, was, and I paused. Yeah. And I hesitated. Yeah, because yeah. typically when people had thrown labels at me, I'd had a level of resistance to it. And I've, yeah. I've always been very opinionated, mm -hmm. very spicy. Mm -hmm. All the spices from both of my sides come together and they are me. <laughs> and so, yeah, I, I ain't Spanish shit. You don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. You're the black. You don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> and this person said mixed. And I had to pause. And I they shut me up. I was like, Wait. <laughs> <laughs> I really had this moment where I was like, wait, I have no rebuttal. Yeah. No rebuttal. Wait, what? Oh, like yeah. literally the world opened up. Like, yeah. This is why I'm so confusing. Like, you know, like this is why I'm so confusing to the world when I'm navigating socially. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's so so that's when that came to me when I was about 15, 16 years old. And when it came to, I would say, the depth of racism towards mm. blackness. Because since my father raised my brother and I in a particular mm. way of informing us, like I, I was probably like six years old watching Amistad. Mm. Um, if you're mm. not familiar with Amistad, please Google it and you will know why <laughs> me watching that at six is mm. very unique. Mm. Um, six, watching Amistad, watching other films like that, mm. being taken intentionally to African American Museum in mm. Detroit and all these different places. So I did not grow up oblivious to black struggle because I grew up middle class. Yeah. Um, and I grew up middle class. I grew up, how do I say, brand new middle class is what okay. I call it. Because both of my parents were the first in their families to get mm -hmm. um, degrees. Okay. Mm -hmm. And so I grew up my second half of my like adolescence growing up was in the suburbs. My first half was in the hood. 
Okay. So I'm yeah. I'm both in a lot. I'm I'm a lot yeah. of different things. Yeah. And so he, I I did not grow up in a bubble where I was like oblivious mm-hmm. to yeah. the struggle, but I did grow up in this this awkward dissonance of attention of like I was aware of yeah. racism and I was aware of the ongoing struggle. But I was under this delusion that I think a lot of specifically black people were post-civil rights era, mm. that we had made a lot more progress than we actually have. Yeah. yeah. And there was a certain modicum of, um, what's the phrase I'm looking for? Uh, respectability politics mm. that mm. I was raised on, even though my father at the same time was raising me to be very conscious and very aware. Yeah. Um, so that bubble of oh, we haven't made it as far as I thought we did. And that bubble of um, respectability politics being burst in terms of meaning it doesn't matter how much black people try to appease white people. That's basically where respectability politics Mm -hmm. boils down to. Trying to appease white people enough that you're safe. Mm -hmm. So basically my bubble got burst of it doesn't matter what we do. It doesn't matter how much we try to you know, appease and coddle and navigate and tiptoe and walk on eggshells, you will still shoot us in the face point blank. Mm. You will still choke us out in daylight. Mm. You will still not allow us into spaces of professional success Mm. and uh, economic stability and all these different things. That happened for me, I will say, hmm, when did that come together? That actually came together post-undergrad. Okay. Right after undergrad. Because um, towards the end of my undergraduate degree, Trayvon Martin was murdered, I believe it was 2012. Mm-hmm. Um, that's when I was finishing up my undergrad. Okay. Um, and then it was after that that we had, uh, my goodness, Freddie Gray, Philando Castile, Alton yeah. Sterling, all these other videos that circulate, mm-hmm. Ferguson, all mm-hmm. these other, Mike Brown, you know. Um that I would say three year period after undergrad is what burst those two bubbles Mm -hmm. is what woke me up to wait a minute. Yeah. Um, I knew that there was work to be done, but I thought the work to be done was far more on an individual level of let me be a good steward of the access both of my parents slaved and yeah. pushed and sweat and, you know, worked themselves to the bone to yeah. get. Let me be a good steward of the leg up they yeah. built for me. Yeah. That's where my mind was focused. And let me be responsible with that communally Yeah. Um, in terms of keeping connected and network with other black um, professionals. Because I was at a HBCU, a historically black um, college or university in Alabama. And so that was my main network at the time. We had a small pocket of like Latinx community towards the, the end of me being there, which I was really mad about. I'm like, yeah. oh, y'all want to roll through when I'm going to be out? <laughs> this is how we do stuff around here? Okay, okay, I see y'all. Um, so yeah, I was just thinking like, okay, let me just be responsible with what they've given me. Let me remain communally minded yeah. to share whatever I get. But, you know, we're relatively okay. And it was like, wait a minute. No. Yeah. We are still dying out yeah. here. Let's, mm-hmm. let's, let's rewind. Um, how do I say this? I was trying, I was thinking of putting up 
um, a, a roof mm. and insulation yeah. and drywall on a house that still has a rotting foundation. Mm. Yeah. That's the realization I had. Wow. Yeah. That's powerful. Mm-hmm. And so your undergrad, that was a, a Christian school? It was. Christian HBCU. Okay. Mm-hmm. So I guess, yeah, talk to me a little bit about that. Like, what was your spiritual upbringing and how did that all tie into everything? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, how did that meet, like, your, your belief in Jesus? Like, how mm-hmm. did that intersect into oh, all the other things? with all these other things. Yeah. Um, I was I was brought up in the Christian church. Mm-hmm. Both of my parents are Christian. Um, both of my parents are of the same denomination, Seventh-day Adventist. Um, and... Granted, they both had, how do I say, my experience of their networks within Adventism was very different. Okay. Because just like, I'm noticing this with every denomination, each denomination has such a broad spectrum of types of people and types of congregations inside of their denomination. And that was definitely my experience growing up. Um, Latino, Latina Adventist congregations are completely different from African American Hmm. Adventist congregations. And... African-American congregations are completely different from West Indian. And West, it's just, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, uh, different from white, different from white that is, that believes that they're multicultural because they have like three Latinos and two Asians (laughs) and four and a half black people, you know, that's different from the all white church. And, you know, it's just uh, this, this, this interesting um, variety. So I, I, I grew up with, Variety being my norm. Okay. Yeah. Um, just differentness. So in my mind, there was always a possibility of, yeah, there was just always a possibility of something different. Yeah. Um, I, how'd I say, um, for me, my experience with Christ was very interesting. Um, because I saw, particularly in my father's church, I saw these women, I saw these black women who were just so celebratory mm. when it came to God, when mm. it came to Jesus. It was like they just felt it. Yeah. And it's a good word, celebratory. You know? Mm-hmm. And I didn't feel it. I was in a place where I was really having a hard time feeling anything. Okay. Um, my childhood growing up was very, very rough, mm. very difficult. And so I see these women and I was just like, God, like, what am I missing out on? Yeah. What do they have that I don't have? Like, yeah. I want that. Mm-hmm. It was that, that was it. That was the extent of the fanciness of my prayer. I was just like, <laughs> I want that. Like, I, yeah. I want to experience. Like, I, I'm yeah. just, you know, floating numb out here. Mm. Um, very much so in hindsight, dealing with depression. Mm. Um, didn't have the language for that. Yeah. And I remember about a year and a half after I prayed that prayer, um, I was actually at the the high school that I mentioned previously, and I had just this first, I would say, I won't say first Holy Spirit encounter because there were other experiences that I had that I very much so believe the Holy Spirit was leading, but it was the first time that I actually felt internally, like mm. experientially, like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. God is real. God is present. Mm. God is with me. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, and so from that moment when I was about, uh, 15 or 16 is where I intentionally in my mind was like, okay, it's me and you, like, 
yeah. we're doing this. Let's do this. Let's do mm-hmm. this. Let's do this. Mm-hmm. Let's really do this. I, because my childhood was so crazy, my response to it was to avoid stress and craziness as much as possible. Mm-hmm. So for me, I, even though I grew up, I don't, I don't have a similar story to, to a number of people that I'm connected to where it's like, I grew up in the church, but I was like rebelling and didn't want to have anything to do with this. And that and the third, for me, I went a different extreme where I was just like, no, I, I, I really do want to fall in line mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. I'm catching enough hell as is. Mm-hmm. So I'm not trying to bring any more stress. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like I'm, I was a stressed out kid, mm-hmm. flat out, you yeah. know? Yeah. And so, um, so for me, coming to Christ was a transition of following certain rules. And granted, I, I, I wasn't the type of person because I was raised to think very critically. So I wasn't the type of person that it was like, any rule that is out there, I'm just following the rules because I yeah. no, uh, very much so a challenger of, of many different things. So for me, it was the rules that made sense to me, yeah, the yeah. rules I actually believed in. Where I was like, no, I think that's going to keep me from harm. Mm. So I'm good. I'll go with that. So for me, it was transitioning from this transactional, like, oh, these set of rules make sense. I'll roll with that to like, Oh, you're real. You're alive. Mm. You are a being. Yeah, I am interacting good. with you. You are interacting with me. Mm-hmm. That was my like shift into to, to faith in God, and so true faith in Christ. And so undergrad, you know, it was it was very interesting. Not only because I was at an HBCU that is also Christian, but also because my freshman year is when I experienced um, what many of us call like the call, you know, mm-hmm. our calling to yeah. to ministry. And I wound up switching my major. I was majoring in psychology and English. Okay. And God made it very clear to me that it was, I knew I was going to drop psychology after my first class. And I was just debating what I was going to switch it to. And God was like, mm, you're going to switch this to theology, okay. keep the English, and that's mm. what you're doing. Oh. And I was just like, who is you talking to? <laughs> who, I don't know how y'all talk to God. This is how I talk to God. Who is you talking to? You talking to me? You not talking to me? I don't know what you talk about. I'd preached like one sermon in high school, but I was like, "What? No? Are you kidding me?" Oh my gosh! And I was like, "Yeah, you're gonna preach and you're gonna write books." And I was like, "Do I look like I'm trying to be a starving artist out here? That's not cute." (laughs) Flat out, this is you know, sixteen, seventeen year old me. Like, um, (laughs) correction. Let us edit this plan. You know. Um, and I heard clear as day, um, God, God say to me, do you really think I'm not going to take care of you? Yeah. Boom. Okay. (laughs) No rebuttal. No rebuttal. See, once again, I am silenced. (laughs) And so, um, so that was the beginning of of that shift for me. So it was interesting being a theology major who is a woman at an Mm -hmm. HBCU who is mixed Mm -hmm. and, um, and coming to find out, I had colleagues, I had peers, rather, who didn't really fully believe that I was mixed. Okay. Which is really huh. funny until they met my mother. And they were like, yo, <laughs> like, your mom is Dominican. I'm like, she got an accent, her mannerisms, like, yo, you're really Latina. And I'm like... Yeah, yo, what did you think? <laughs> what are you talking about? But the, but but they were coming from a place of like they didn't 
uh, where it's, it's, it's different being raised by a Latina versus being raised by somebody who is of Latina descent, yeah, but it's yeah. like second, third, fourth generation. So they were like, nah, we didn't yeah. know how close you were to the, you know, <laughs> to, to, to the source. To the source. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, bro, I have an abuela. <laughs> like, come on. Um, so all the dynamics that I mentioned in terms of social misunderstandings, that was happening in addition to being a woman who um, is very opinionated was nurtured and cultivated to be very opinionated and curious and to ask a lot of questions and to be very critical in my thinking um and was very unapologetic about that I was very I've always been very comfortable in that about me because of how I was nurtured Mm -hmm. and so it wasn't until I encountered the patriarchy that I could not name at that time yeah I did not have that word for it language yeah I didn't have the language for it the patriarchy of being within um the theology department you Mm -hmm. know where I where I started to wake up to the the intersectionality piece of being a woman. It was very confusing to me. I could not in hindsight now I better understand why I was getting certain reactions. Yeah. Um but at the time I was just so perplexed. I was like I'm just I'm just talking. Like I'm I'm just speaking my mind. I'm asking you questions. Mm-hmm. I want to understand where you're coming from because I'm trying yeah. this is how I learn. I learn by engaging questions and picking things yeah. apart, putting it back together. Granted, that's not how everybody learns. That's how I learn. And that's threatening. I, yeah, it was mm-hmm. threatening to a lot of people, yeah. especially a lot of men, also some women who have different personalities than mine or who weren't raised mm-hmm, and cultivated mm-hmm. to be outspoken and exactly. critical thinkers and et cetera, et cetera. I was oblivious to this. I'm thinking mm-hmm. this is normal. Yeah. This is everybody. Yeah. I'm not saying anything that you don't have the right mm-hmm. to say. Like I, I was very comfortable in being so bold because I was like, everybody has everybody. the right to be bold. Like it, it wasn't a sense of superiority. It yeah. was like, let's do this like we're all here we paid for these classes let's you know suck everything out of it that we can let's go let's do this um yeah it was you know just very much so getting a lot of labels of like being mannish you're just so masculine you're like a dude you or you're so cold or just a lot of uh namings of me you know trying to put me in their own boxes that I didn't understand because I'm like no I'm very comfortable in my femininity I'm definitely a woman um Mm -hmm. and I would have to thank my Latina Dominican heritage for my comfort with my femininity totally so the way I dress very expressive very artistic just a lot of different things I can see in hindsight how much how much added weight Oh yeah, that put onto um, my social experience and and navigating mm-hmm. in that context, where at the time I was literally just being myself mm-hmm. and I mm-hmm. had no awareness. So that started bringing me into mm-hmm. yeah, um, awareness. So I'm definitely further behind when it comes to waking up to patriarchy mm-hmm. than I am when it comes to waking up to. Um, whiteness and racism yeah 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 Yeah. that's good yeah I totally identify with that I feel like Latinas like it's normal for us to be raised to be confident and to be to ask questions and to be loud and and I experienced the same sort of stuff and it was just like I'm being myself and Mm -hmm. the same thing you know Mm -hmm. I'm in class I'm with 
main, I mean, all white people, but mm-hmm. mainly men. And I'm mm-hmm. in class and I'm, mm-hmm. oh, and this and that. And I have my opinions. And literally, like, at the end of my class periods, like, my professor would make it a point to say, remember women. Like, remember your place. Whoa. And I really Whoa, do. Whoa. I would not have lasted. <laughs> Let me just I tell don't. you. <laughs> Woo. Girl, no. I didn't get it like that. You got it on another level. That yeah. is that is absurd. Yeah. Like, it was very, very, very direct in my face like and and it was just that kind of thing like wait what you know and I'm not trying to be like (laughs) remember my place (laughs) I'm just I'm literally like just asking you a question Mm. about the bible like because that's how I was raised to to Mm. be you know Mm. and I was raised by a single mom and a Mm. single grandma and Mm -hmm. so on top of that the fact that they're latina and opinionated and whatever Mm -hmm. They're freaking independent single women. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So, mm-hmm. so yeah. So I totally, I totally understand that. And it's almost like this, like it's jarring. You know, it's yeah. jarring to yeah. like kind of find yourself in a situation where you're like, but wait, wait, what? Like I'm yeah. just being me. You yeah. Know? And yeah, and that confidence is very threatening, very, very. threatening to people um, because they want that's the submissive woman. Yeah. And if you're just naturally just not like that, then it's very, it's the end of the world. Yeah. Let yeah. me tell you. Yeah, I remember I would literally, because back then I thought that that was like, you know, right and true, whatever. So Mm -hmm. like, I would literally cry myself to sleep. Like, God, why'd you make me this way? Man. Like, why did you make me this way if Mm -hmm. I'm supposed to not be this way, you Mm -hmm. know? So anyways, yeah, I totally feel you on that, girl. Yeah. Yeah, I was just going to say, in listening to you, you're helping me even piece more together where I can see how the, that both of my parents are very animated. Um, but I would say like the, the confidence and like all you were describing in terms of like Latina culture of just like yeah. being very expressive, being very, you know, um, opinionated, et cetera, and fiery and passionate yeah. about it. And then my father, who's an African-American man, mm-hmm. he did not, he did not switch up. He did not compartmentalize the values that he gave my brother versus the values he gave me. So I can see how I was not only given, you know, the the, the fire and, a, and and passion of my Latina mother and of my abuela, but also when it came to this level of expecting a certain level of respect, yeah, having a certain level of confidence in my intellect, all that came from my African American father. I did not grow up with a Latino father mm-hmm. where. A number of my Latina sisters are letting me know, like, there's some machismo that I grew up with. And I'm like, my mom married an African-American who, granted, because there's plenty of misogyny and patriarchy in Black culture as well. Mm -hmm. But he's just one of the ones that chose not to function that way for whatever combination of reasons. So I definitely... That's awesome. That's really good. Just came out the gate a little different. Have you read um, Angela Davis, Women, Race, and Class? No, I have not. Because she talks a lot about um, egalitarianism within black culture mm-hmm. and how, like, that was very threatening for white, you know, for slave owners, you know, and how that was, like, how black culture, like, made it. Like, mm-hmm. essentially, you know, because mm-hmm. they, you know, women and men within black culture, like, supported Working each together. other. Exactly. Absolutely. They supported each other so much. And, and yeah, it was very threatening to, to white slave owners. So, mm-hmm. um, as you said that, I thought about that. Yeah. I think you'll enjoy it. You should read that. I definitely will. 
So uh, I wanted to talk to you about uh, Seminary While Black. Yes. That's that's essentially why we're here, but there's that so much is, other stuff. There's so many good things to talk <laughs> right? about. There's I so mean, much come good on. stuff. Yeah. So if you can just talk to us, like, what is Seminary While Black? Um, how did it start? Like, wh- for people who've never heard of it, literally, what is it? Mm-hmm. Um, and then kind of zoom out. And I know that it's, 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 started I guess or is focused on a particular institution Mm -hmm, um mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. I would love to hear on just a national level because I know people um all over the place that Mm -hmm. we're talking about seminary while black and so Mm -hmm. I'm just interested in like as a general movement in you know seminaries um and in Christian institutions and higher ed Mm -hmm. uh, when it comes to to black folk like yeah what 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 is that so Mm -hmm. you want to talk to me about that yeah, yeah, absolutely, and I'm and I'm glad to hear that there are so many people all over the country that resonated with it and that were engaging with it, and um, because as I as I explain what it is, it'll become very clear that this truly is a national issue. Totally. So everybody should be engaging with this. Seminary Wild Black is the name, the naming of a very brutal experience. Mm. It is a movement of people no longer being um, no longer being publicly silent okay. about the abuses mm. and the racism and the trauma and the tragedy endured by persons that attend um, seminaries, mm-hmm. um, whether it's to be clergy or otherwise, and who are black. Yeah, I I cannot state enough how devastating. How devastating it is, mm-hmm. um, how pervasive, how deep this goes. This recent naming of it um, culminated, has culminated from about two and a half years mm-hmm. of different groups of black students, particularly at Fuller Theological Seminary, naming abuses, mm-hmm. naming issues, mm-hmm. coming constantly to the table of administration, submitting documents making requests for professors and for faculty or staff who've caused and students who've caused abuses to be held accountable. And all of these efforts have been silenced, buried, mm. um, little to no action being done. Um, if, if, if anything at all, we have students, black students who have as a result been put in harm's way. Mm-hmm. One of them being uh, Dominique Robinson Coleman, who she can tell her story much better than I can. And I can actually share with you a podcast where she gives a really yeah. good summary of it, if yeah. anyone's interested in, in referencing that. Um, but she particularly was put in harm's way because her life was being threatened mm. by a white Fuller student yeah. um, who has a, um, I can't remember which type of military background mm-hmm. um but mm-hmm. he was a sniper wow and and so you have somebody who is very capable yeah yeah because yeah. anybody's able but you yeah. have somebody who's very capable very. who's making threats and the institution does nothing mm-hmm. and so um other black students rallied around her and so this is this year this protest at the baccalaureate is a culmination of two and a half years of groups of students over and over and over and over again, pleading in very articulate 
in very intentional and very diplomatic ways mm-hmm. with administration, yeah. following the instructions that administration gives to um, deal with grievances. Oh, just go talk to this person. Oh, just go talk to that person. And you end up running in circles and getting nowhere and ends up getting buried. Mm-hmm. And so this year is when my involvement mm-hmm. begins. Okay. And we started having these quarterly meetings actually turned out to being a a little more than quarterly this year because we had three early this year with administration to address issues again that had never really to resurface issues that had never been properly addressed and dealt with and mind you um i want to name the amount of distress and the amount of burnout that so many black students Mm -hmm. have endured and that a number of black students um, struggled to push through Mm -hmm. to engage this year to do the work that we're seeing now. Um, And so bringing these issues back up again, administration did a lot of, did a lot of abusive gaslighting. And in doing that, the abuse in doing that is not only the insult to all the blood and sweat and mm-hmm. tears that has gone into communicating with administration, yeah. um, which is additional work, because these are students yeah, yeah, who also many of us have jobs. Mm-hmm. I know I do. Mm-hmm. And you have a personal life. And then on top of that, you're engaging in something that's not your responsibility. Yeah. It is not the students, the student body's responsibility to have to constantly hold administration accountable mm-hmm. for being equitable yeah. for, on a deeper level, being Christ-like. Yeah. That's yeah. not our job. And so the, the additional abuse of that is the labor that is then dumped on black students because administration fiends this weakness of like, you have to tell us, mm-hmm. you have to tell us, even though we've said plenty. Mm-hmm. Oh, but you, but that's not specific enough or we still don't get it. You have to tell us, you have to help us. So then black students will then go back and we'll deliberate, and we'll analyze, and we'll research, and we'll ponder, and we'll strategize. Like, okay, how can how can administrative administration fix this? And a and a friend of mine, um, Tamisha Tyler, mm-hmm. named it. I have to give her credit for this because she really helped me mm-hmm. process this. Where she was like very blatantly, "This is consultant work. Mm-hmm. Let's mm-hmm. let's name what this is. Yeah, this is labor. Yeah, this is consultant work." And, um, and, and, and that just clicked in my head and I was like, you're absolutely right. Mm-hmm. This, th- that is the additional abuse of it. Um, and professors do it all the time. I've had a professor recently who made some very racist comments in class. And so I had a one-on-one conversation with him. I didn't blast him on social media. I like to stay, take steps with people. Yeah. Um, and that's something that I want to speak to when it comes to the seminary while black movement is that. We have very much so communally, all of the black students involved in this have very much so honored the steps. Mm -hmm. We've taken Mm -hmm. the steps Mm -hmm. repeatedly as much as possible and then decided to take it to a public platform because Fuller is not holding itself accountable. Mm -hmm. And so I'm doing the same. I do. I believe in the same thing on a personal level. So I spoke with him one on one. And long story short... I was able to hear in the conversation because my awareness is developing in this um, in terms of how the abuses of power play out 
Mm. And I heard in his language how he was trying to shift labor onto me Mm. to compensate for the lack of the lack of cross-cultural engagement Mm. that he was doing with this topic. Mm. And mind you, this is in the school of intercultural (laughs) studies. Intercultural <laughs> studies. So give me an example. Like how was he trying to put that on sure. like, labor on you? Sure. So so the response was very passively resistant. Okay. Um, very passively resistant. Um, no sense of very similar to ad- administration's posture, where it's okay. just like no sense of assertive no mm-hmm. sense of ownership, no mm-hmm. sense of assertiveness of Hmm, let me take a look at the resources I have to better refine what I'm presenting. Mm. Um, Because to his point, which he admitted, he's like, hey, I'm a dude, I'm a human, I'm I'm a person. I'm like, yeah, I completely get that. That's why I'm having this conversation with you. But when our humanity, the airness in our humanity Mm. is used as an excuse to not use our agency mm. to improve, yeah. that's when we're then dumping labor onto the other person. Mm-hmm. Because okay. then he says, after he says that, then he says that I can do research mm. on the particular things that I'm naming, which granted the things I was naming um, are, are data and information and history and context that is relevant to everyone in the room. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. not something that is particular to me because I'm black. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so he, he doesn't acknowledge that. And he's just like, yeah, if that's something you want to mm. dig deeper into, then you can do research on it. And then I can learn from your research. Yeah. But I'm taking this class yeah, to learn from you. as a student mm-hmm. to learn from you. Yeah. But you. And this is a constant, yeah. constant, constant, constant dynamic. That's, that's the norm. Yeah. You know, that's, that's the jugular, uh, the, the knee-jerk reflex. Yeah. And so when it comes to seminary while black... Um, after all these cycles of coming to the table, um, this particular year, we had a meeting in March. We had another meeting. Let me see. We had another meeting in April, and we had another meeting at the end of May. Hmm. We submitted a proposal. Granted, administration has already had multiple documents from Black students, but we submitted another proposal April 10th, the meeting mm-hmm. that we had then. We had another meeting at the end of May. Administration refused to give us a written response. Mm. When they came to the meeting, um, the May meeting, they had no substantial verbal response. Mm. Um, President Laverton gave a very, very diplomatic apology. Mm. And everyone in that room that was not only a black student, but we've been and I say we as in black students have been very blessed to have allies mm. who are Latina and Latino and white and Asian. Mm. Um, this has been a very uh, intersectional mm. movement. Yeah, We've been blessed in that way. Everyone in that room that was in solidarity with us, we all felt the emptiness mm-hmm. of his words. There was profound grief mm. and rage yeah. and sadness in that room in response to him. Um, so just the emptiness of his words. And so it was after that meeting that there was just this communal sense of, we know we cannot keep this private anymore. Mm. You 
are not doing anything. Yeah. It was as if they were literally, not as if, the moves that were made, the things that were said, it was all about placating. Mm. How can we just calm them down? Yeah, yeah. How can we just make you not mad at us? No sense of assertiveness to really systemically change and shift things. And so from that point, we knew we had to shift gears into protest. So yeah, talk to me about just protest. And so, I mean, we know the background, how, how it got there. Mm-hmm. And so what was the ex- what was the experience like, like the embodied experience? Um, I know that you, um, for those who, who don't know about any of that, um, right. that you were able to address mm-hmm. the president, uh, yes. Mark Laberton, directly there um and so what was that experience like and yeah just talk to me a little bit about protests and what what that means to you and and how that is a form of I mean you love you know that's a form of love that's a form of care that's Mm -hmm. a form of Mm -hmm. attention um Mm -hmm. and you don't do that because you're angry necessarily or only you Mm -hmm. do that you know Mm -hmm. of course you are but um there's so much more to that there's so much more to a protest than just well I'm pissed so I'm gonna do this um so yeah if you want to just talk to me about that Absolutely. Definitely a combination of things. And, and obviously I'm speaking from, from my perspective, everybody embodies it differently. Yeah. Um, but for me, I see it very much so as a spiritual imperative, mm-hmm. a truly deeply spiritual imperative. When the people of God are not taking words of accountability seriously, mm-hmm. because words of accountability are prophetic. Mm-hmm. It's, because we're coming as people of faith. It's, it's, not, it's not just the secular concept of, hey, you crossed a boundary and I'm just letting you know BTW. Mm-hmm. It's, hey, you've not only crossed a boundary, you've demolished it, you've abused it, mm-hmm. and you've done it in the name of Jesus. This mm-hmm. is unacceptable. Yeah, amen. Because mm-hmm. you are not only, as people of faith, we understand that when we abuse each other, We are not only abusing another physical body, but we are also abusing an embodiment of God. Mm. That we we are not only, because everyone, whether we're a believer or not, are physically reflections of the image of God. But on top of that, when we are believers, that means that we have allowed God to reside within us. Mm. And then the abuse Mm. is of Christ as well. Yeah. You know? Um, on a, on a, on a whole nother level, because abusing anyone is an abuse of Christ, and so that's 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 what that means. It, it and it and it brings me always brings me back to Matthew eighteen when it comes to resolving conflict. You try to talk to the person one on one, okay? Didn't work. Hmm. You bring one two other people into it. Try to talk it through again. Let's give it another go. Hmm. You're still not listening. That's the, that's the word that Jesus uses yeah. in that chapter. They're not listening. Mm. Huh. Then it's time to go to the next step. Next step is to bring it to the larger community. Yeah. To hold them accountable. Mm. Um, and so that's what we did. Yeah. You know? Yeah. We did the other steps and we were not heard mm. and we were not responded to. Um, and there was little to no reverence for the disgrace um, of abuse and trauma. Um, And so we shifted into this space of protesting 
which is very much so this interesting blend of lament mm. and a next step in accountability. Mm-hmm. It, it was for both communities. Yeah. It was for those of us who are experiencing it and those of us who are in solidarity, those yeah. who are in solidarity with us mm-hmm. to lament. And then also in that lament to very graphically hold those in power accountable for their abuse of their power. That's how, that's how I see it. So, so it is very much so coming deeply from a place of love yeah. because to be perfectly honest this is labor yeah. yeah 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 protest is labor i am still personally and i know other people because we've we've talked about this are as well i am still personally recovering yeah. from choosing to put my body mind and spirit on the line in june for that protest yeah. that is not something that people just up and do casually because mm-hmm. we just kind of feel like it and it makes us feel better at the end of the day no we leave there exhausted you leave trained mm-hmm. you leave that that there's a price there is a cost there is a deep 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 cost yeah. to protesting and it was worth it mm-hmm. it was absolutely mm-hmm. worth it because the name of the Lord being used for abuse truly is a disgrace. I just, I believe that with every fiber of my being.